activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the uh, course on diagnosis and management of localized, locally advanced and advanced kidney cancer. I'm very thrilled to uh, welcome my, uh, to the people here in the audience and they tell me a huge group of people watching this virtual. Uh, we're thrilled to have you. And I'm thrilled also to have my colleagues, uh, Dr. Martin Ball from the National Cancer Institute. I'm gonna talk about genetics of kidney cancer and about how that affects your management, your surgical management of patients with kidney cancer. Dr. Ball is gonna talk about many of the, the advanced uh, aspects of, of surgical management of kidney cancer. We're very thrilled to have Dr. David McDermott, you know, one of the leaders in the field from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer uh, Center in Boston, obviously is gonna talk about some very exciting uh, new data on uh, management of advanced forms of kidney cancer, and he's gonna be primarily focusing on clear cell renal cancer. And we're also very, very happy to have another leading expert in the world on this, Dr. Ram Srinivasan, again from the National Cancer Institute, who's a medical oncologist, as is Dr. McDermott, uh, and who's gonna to talk to us about management of non-clear kidney cancers advanced, and also gonna give you some very exciting, up-to-date information on drugs we may use to treat localized disease in patients with VHL targeting HIF2. So we're gonna hear about those things. Uh, and uh, next, uh, I'm gonna start with, again, the genetic basis of kidney cancer, why this is important to you and me as urologic surgeons in our management of our patients. Now, when we started our work on kidney cancer you know, three and a half decades ago, kidney cancer was a single disease. We treated them all the same surgically, gave them all the same drugs, none of which worked very well. We now know that kidney cancer is not kidney cancer. It's made up of a number of different types of cancer that just happen to occur in this organ. Different histologies you can see here, different clinical course, responding differently to therapies, and as we now know, caused by different genes. We now have 18, 18 different genes that cause kidney cancer. So kidney cancer just happens to happen in this organ, 18 different types of cancer, and most of what we've really learned about the genetic basis of it comes from our study, the study of patients with hereditary or familial kidney cancer. This is much more common than people thought. And it na we now know there's at least 14 different types of inherited kidney cancer that you'll be seeing in your office if you manage kidney cancer. And those are the genes that cause those 14. Now, why do we care as urologic surgeons about the genetic basis of kidney cancer? I'll tell you why. Because it'll make you a better surgeon and a better clinician. There's no question about it. So in other words, and you can hear a lot more about this from myself, Dr. Ball, and the other speakers. In other words, if you have a patient and you know the genetic basis of it, should I do active surveillance? Watch this tumor, there's a lot of people doing that. Or should we do surgery now? Also, what kind of operation should I do? Robotic versus open? Should I nucleate? You heard from, we'll hear from Dr. Ball. Should I go wide on my margins or nucleate? How should I do this surgery? And should I do active surveillance on this or should we treat this patient? If we treat, and you're gonna hear a lot about this from Dr. McDermott, Dr. Sinavassan, 
agents that target the VHL, HIF, VEGF pathway, that target the MET pathway, another cancer gene, kidney cancer gene, the FH pathway we'll hear about, or should we give them you know, these immunotherapy drugs, PD-1, PD-L1, CTLA-4, we'll hear about that. So we're gonna talk briefly about four different types, histologic types of kidney cancer and just give you a little overview, a brief overview of how we might think about managing these individually that are different from each other. So we'll start off with the most well-known type of inherited kidney cancer and what that's taught us about how to manage regular non-hereditary, most common type of clear cell kidney cancer. So we'll start with this patient, 29-year-old female, appears to be affected with von Hippel-Lindau. She comes for initial screening. She hadn't seen doctors, whatever, this happens all the time. She does have cerebellar hemangioblastoma, head surgery, and now she's come to understand she has something in her kidneys. How do you make that diagnosis? Well, it's really simple, and I'm gonna say the same thing about all these, really simple. All you have to do is order a panel. All right, so a panel of kidney cancer genes, it'll have 18 or 19 genes in it, and you can also throw in some DNA repair genes if you want, but you don't even have to remember the gene names. Just, just get a panel. All sorts of companies run these. They're not that expensive. Insurance generally will cover it. So this the disorder is called by an abnormality, caused by an abnormality of this gene we call the VHL gene, all right? And there, 100% so far, 443 families, we're now up to 443, 443 we found mutations. So it's basically a very, very accurate test, easy to do, and not that expensive anymore, fortunately. So this patient had positive tests for that. You can see on this screen what that gene was. And um, she has these tumors in her kidneys, all right? So she's got a number that are, she's got one centimeter, a couple that are two, a couple that are one five, and one in the left kidney that's 3.5 centimeters. So how do we manage that? Do we watch it? Do we operate? Do we need a nephrectomy, bilateral nephrectomy? What do we do here? So we've learned over the past 37 years in managing papers with von Hippel Lindau and many, many surgeries and surgical approaches and working on this, uh, this is always clear cell renal cancer. We don't say always often in our field, but this is always clear cell. Over the years, we developed a surgical management approach where we recommend active surveillance, not doing surgery, active surveillance to the largest tumor reaches the three centimeter threshold, at which time we recommend surgical intervention. In 37 years, 1,254 patients not yet, not we made more of it as of today, not yet had one patient develop metastatic disease. We've had 53 of our patients develop metastatic disease but had larger tumors, not one yet with three or smaller. So that's what we recommend for this and two others I'll show you, but very differently for other types of kidney cancer. Here, she had a left robotic by Dr. Ball, left robotic partial nephrectomy, 50, actually this was prior to Dr. Ball, but 54 lesions were removed, 33 cysts were taken out, uh, these were all ISUP2, so you and I would say Furman2, it's now ISUP2, uh, and the uh, patient has, has done very well post-op. Now, how do we do these procedures? What do we recommend? We recommend a nucleation, all right? Now, we've taken out as many as 93 tumors from a single kidney, and uh, one of the fellows not too long ago took out, I think, 51 or something, but we are uh, very careful about this, and you'll hear about this from Dr. Ball. We do a nucleation. So if we're taking out a bunch of tumors, you can't take big margins on these, and we've done very well with this. So that's our approach for VHL 
uh, clear cell, VHL mutation, kidney cancer. So that's the first base. All right, so here's the second one. This one has no family history, has one kidney, one tumor in the kidney, has a 3.3 centimeter uh, mass in the left kidney. Okay, well, we decided to biopsy this. Uh, so he had a biopsy and then surgery, had a nucleation. This was a clear cell renal carcinoma, Furman or ISUP2, in other words, low grade uh, uh, renal cell cancer. Uh, and actually, a good question for Dr. Ball on this one, I want to ask him this, is I know what he did here, but how would you manage these going forward? What do you recommend to people who biopsy something? They know it's clear cell. Maybe they even know it's a VHL mutation. Do you nucleate here? Do you go a little wider? So we'll, we'll get that for him during his talk. And this is sporadic, non-inherited uh, clear cell kidney cancer, VHL mutation in over 90% of these tumors. Now, here's the third case. So this one shows up, sadly, with a larger tumor. Again, biopsy here showed clear cell renal carcinoma, higher grade, and sadly, this patient presented with metastatic disease, big mass in the retroperitoneum, and also disease in the neck. So what do you do here? And we'll talk about that more. When do you, uh, when do you resect? When do you go after locally advanced disease uh, and how do you think about treating these systemically? And we're going to hear a lot about this, but basically this pathway, we and others, our colleague Bill Kalin at Harvard, obviously huge in this, uh, have, have developed, de described this pathway. We know that the VHL gene, product of the VHL gene, targets something called hyboxia-inducible factor, you'll hear about, or HIF, normally for degradation. And when it's mutated in the cancer, it can't, and HIF goes up. And that drives a bunch of things you and I know means cancer, like blood vessels and local growth and all that. And this provided the foundation for the development of drugs targeting clear cell kidney cancer, the understanding of this pathway. We now, the FDA has now approved nine drugs that target this pathway. And we're going to tell you, you're going to hear from Dr. Sinovacin about the 10th drug that was just approved for VHL kidney cancer, big studies going now with sporadic kidney cancer, targeting the HIF-2 pathway in VHL, which we think is the most critical pathway. And you'll hear the work about the HIF-2 drug, belzutifan, in patients with VHL. So that's clear cell. How about non-clear cell, right? We say clear cell is about 75% of kidney cancer. What about the other ones? They sure seem, well, we sure see a lot of them. So this is a patient that we saw uh, had multiple tumors in both kidneys, bilateral, multifocal. And uh, he, this was type 1 papillary kidney cancer. He also had a family history of kidney cancer, many people in his family. Just kidney cancer, didn't have anything else like brain or uh, tumors or pheos or something like that, just had papillary kidney cancer. We called this hereditary papillary renal carcinoma, HPRC, familial form of type 1 papillary kidney cancer. Well, over the years, this is, I mean, now 20, 27 years, actually, uh, we've developed a surgical approach managing this, same way as VHL, where we manage these conservatively with, with active surveillance till the largest tumor reaches 3 centimeters. And again, as of today, we've not had, in 27 years, we've not had one patient develop metastatic disease when managed in that fashion. We have had a number, sadly, come with larger tumors develop metastatic disease. This is cancer, but not there. So that's how we recommend managing these. How do you make the diagnosis? Again, just do a panel, a panel of kidney genes. It's a family, it's bilateral. We recommend genetic testing. 
for people who are under 46, people who have bilateral multifocal, and people who have a family history. So it's easy to remember, it's easy to get the test. This is one of the genes met. So that's the gene for hereditary papillary renal carcinoma. Now, how about this patient? This is a 55-year-old who we saw with bilateral multifocal disease. He came with this. And again, this is one Dr. Ball operated on. You can see this patient had bilateral multifocal disease. On the largest on the left is 4.8 centimeters. We don't like that. On the right, it's 4 centimeters. We biopsied this. It was type 1 papillary renal cancer. Okay, BMF, we did, it. we did a panel. It was negative. Exactly. This is bilateral multifocal disease. That's much more common than is, uh, than is the hereditary papillary. We managed those the same way. So he had bilateral partial nephrectomies. This is a young woman who came with this large cancer. It was papillary. Uh, we found it to be an unusual type of kidney cancer. It was actually novel when we found it. And that's a T, something called TFE3 kidney cancer, which is a type of papillary kidney cancer. When you can, your pathologist will stain those cells, it'll come up positive for TFE3. And you, if, you, you know, if they're not sure, it's kind of a funny papillary, maybe clear papillary, say stain for TFE3 kidney cancer. And also the staining, if it's a little iffy, ask them to do a fish test, a fish test. It's easy to get, it's the gold standard, and it will tell you 100% if this is what you call a fusion kidney cancer. You might say, well, it sounds pretty unusual, but it's not as unusual as you think. Also, here's one we saw, a 23-year-old who came up from the South, she's a law student, and she had this two centimeter, two centimeter lesion in her left kidney, and she presented with positive node. So this you do not do active surveillance on. This is more common than you think. 40% of kidney cancer in children and young adults, a young person with kidney cancer under 46, think fusion, think TFE3 or TFEB. You could even see it in adults. It's about 12% of type 2 papillary. We do not recommend active surveillance here. This is the last one I'm going to go over. And this is uh, this patient here. Oh, she was 24. She had this cyst in her left kidney. We weren't sure. Was there something else there on CT? We weren't so sure. We did MR and we saw this. She's 24. We said, oh my word. She also had a skin bump, cutaneous lyomyoma, and she had early onset fibroids. We said, oh my, this must be HLRCC. We did germline testing. It was positive. Another one of the tests on that panel for FH gene, fumarate hydratase. She had a family history. You can get cutaneous and uterine lyomyomas and kidney cancer. The gene is fumarate hydratase. We and another group helped characterize this. Uh, this is highly uh, effective, 98%. We have 764 patients with this and are 98% positive on this germline test. So how do you operate on this? We went wide, I mean wide on this, almost all the way to the collecting system with this one. It was tumor inside the cyst, also it invaded through the parenchyma. This is a patient we saw, this guy and his family actually, this is a 52 year old, had bilateral multifocal, these small lesions you see. We took this out, you can see we go wide on this. We looked at that and my word, it had already gone through the capsule and was invading into the parenchyma. If you'd done your, our standard nucleation, not, not good. You spilled these cells, that's trouble. 
This was his 17-year-old daughter. She shows up with this. Left kidney, you can see there, at about 3 o'clock. In red is one lower, about 6.30. These came out. Look at this. Our pathologist about fell over dead. She said, Marston, you're not going to believe this. This tumor, this little 7-millimeter tumor, has gone already through the capsule, and it's invaded up into the parenchyma. I said, don't tell me we've got a positive margin. No, no, she no, you went wide on that. So this is a guy came with a cyst, a small tumor inside cyst, positive node. Spread, these can spread when they're small. So you don't do active surveillance. This is the lady that was going to get screening on the outside. We saw her in 03, and then she didn't. Six, three years later, she got screening. They called this negative, but we look real close. It's easy in retrospect. Maybe a lesion there. Four years after that, they called me and said, hey, we got one of yours over here. It's over in a city near ours, and yeah, she had this, that, that. 10 to 59 nodes were positive. We lost her two and a half years later. So we do not do active surveillance on these and imaging every single year. So what I've showed you is kidney cancer is not a single disease. Different histologies, different clinical course caused by different genes with different clinical approaches. And we use, you use, a precision surgical approach. Some you manage, some you do surgery. Some you do a nucleation, some you go wide. But understanding the genetic basis of this disease will make a big difference. Thank you very much. Okay. I'm happy to welcome to the podium uh, Dr. Mark Ball. He looks good, but he should be a little exhausted. This is his third educational course at this meeting. Dr. Ball. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to, to see so many faces in person. This is the, the third time we've given this course, but the first time in front of a live audience. So it's uh, certainly uh, great to see some familiar faces in the audience as well. Um, pull up the slides for Mark Ball, if you can. So <clears throat> my task this morning is to, uh, to really talk about sort of two bookends of surgical management of, of kidney cancer and that is how we do partial nephrectomy, and then on the other end, for advanced disease, when to think about cytoreductive nephrectomy. Bear with us for just a moment.
Here we go. Okay, no relevant disclosures. So again, how, how do we think about partial nephrectomy and how do we think about cytoreductive nephrectomy are the, are the two, uh, two considerations for this talk. So let's start with partial nephrectomy. So this is a case um, that I saw about 18 months ago. This was a 71-year-old man who was referred to us with bilateral renal masses. He did have a genetic workup since he had bilateral masses, but it was negative. Um, he actually, before he saw us, had a biopsy of the right kidney, the smaller tumor, but a little more central that showed clear cell, uh, RCC, no Furman grade was given. Uh, the left was not biopsied. He had good renal function. His uh, creatinine was 0 0.9, and he had an eGFR of 79. So this, uh, he was referred because um, nephron he, uh, sparing surgery was, uh, was needed for someone with bilateral renal masses. So how do we think about that? And when I think about um, how to do a partial nephrectomy, I really have my uh, decision making along four axes. When to do open versus robotic surgery. When do I do a traditional transperitoneal versus a retroperitoneal approach? What tumors are appropriate for tumor nucleation versus maybe the more traditional wide excision? And when do we need to clamp the renal hilum? And when is it more advantageous not to clamp? So I'll go through each one of those and, and then we'll come back to the case. So open versus robotic. I think that um, the biggest driver here is really surgeon experience and comfort. Uh, there are, and that depends a lot on your training. If you have trained to do complex partial nephrectomies via an open approach, that, uh, that's a fantastic approach to treat many renal tumors. I will say, say though, because of the increased utilization of robotics over the past decade, that more and more trainees uh, have more exposure to robotic, and in many programs, almost exclusively robotic. So, um, because of that, I think the, the current generation of, of trainees, and certainly in the future, um, will be doing many of these uh, robotically. Uh, another consideration is the need for cold ischemia. And for a long time, there, there was dogma in kidney surgery that every minute of warm ischemia counts, and 15 minutes is quantitatively better than 16-minute ischemia. And I think a lot of that has... Um, uh, has really been disproven. A lot of that by the seminal work from, from Steve Campbell and, the, and the, the thought leaders at the Cleveland Clinic who've showed that ischemia, as long as it is a reasonable amount of time in the half hour uh, ballpark, uh, does not make a, make a difference. And it's really more of the parenchyma of the kidney that's preserved. However, there still may be cases where cold ischemia could be preferable for a patient with a, a solitary kidney and a complex renal mass. You just heard the, um, the, the very nice talk from Dr. Linehan about, um, about the genetics of kidney cancer and of certain hereditary syndromes. And we feel very strongly that uh, patients with HLRCC or patients with SDH uh, deficient tumors can benefit from open surgery. These are aggressive tumors, even when they're small. They don't have normal tumor pseudocapsules, and they can infiltrate widely into the normal renal parenchyma. And we feel that you can do a more complete uh, resection without the risk of maybe uh, tumor rupture via an open approach. And uh, there may be some considerations for the, the patient's surgical history. If they've had prior renal surgeries, um, there may sometimes be advantageous to approach those 
uh, via an open approach. Uh, we, we, we feel strongly that there are many cases that robotics can still be preferable, but again, that goes back to um, the comfort of the surgeon. And we're at the AUA, so let's see what the AUA guidelines have to say. Guideline statement 22 at the bottom here. In patients undergoing surgical excision of a renal mass, a minimally invasive approach should be considered when it would not compromise oncologic, functional, or perioperative outcomes. I think it's a very uh, reasonable way to think about it. Now, how do we get to the kidney? I think that the, for most of us who do robotic uh, kidney surgery, the transperitoneal approach uh, is probably the more comfortable, probably the more default. Uh, certainly in my training, 90% uh, plus were transperitoneal. It's more familiar anatomy. You can see the great vessels, the renal hilum, uh, reflect the colon, uh, and that gives you more working space. But there are certainly uh, cases where having a retroperitoneal approach uh, in your toolbox can be advantageous. It's great for posterior tumors. Um, and um, you know, for a posterior tumor, it can be challenging to see the base uh, unless you really flip the kidney transperitoneally. It can be a challenge for your surgical assistant to give adequate uh, suction at the base of the tumor, and, and this is uh, really ameliorated with, a, with an RP approach. There are caveats, though. It comes with less familiar anatomy, less working space, um, but again, the, the quicker access to, to posterior tumors and to the base, uh, I think it makes it advantageous for those select cases. Now, this is a, a very common uh, question uh, and, and topic of discussion among kidney cancer surgeons. How much of a margin is enough? When should you do a standard wide excision partial nephrectomy versus tumor enucleation? And, um, and so the way I think about it is when, when we really need to preserve renal parenchyma, when that's paramount, then tumor enucleation can be beneficial. So you can see at the bottom patients with certain types of familial RCC syndrome. So not, not SDH, not HLRCC. We heard those are bad actors. But for, for the other ones, for von Hippel-Lindau, for Berthog Dubé, for hereditary papillary uh, renal cancer, these are good candidates for tumor enucleation. They have robust pseudocapsules, and they're at risk for multiple tumors throughout life. So preserving parenchyma is paramount. For patients with certain types of multifocal disease that don't have a genetic basis, and for patients with severe CKD, all those patients can benefit from uh, tumor enucleation. For the, uh, the most common scenario, though, the patient with a three centimeter lower pole renal mass uh, who's in their 60s and does not have uh, a hereditary predisposition and has normal kidney function, enucleation is not necessary. Um, and in fact, you might be better off taking a margin of normal renal parenchyma uh, in that case to. Uh, to uh, ensure that you have good oncologic uh, results. But the benefits of tumor nucleation, besides preserving the parenchyma, for cer certain complex masses, it's helpful to be able to see the edge of the tumor as you're going around, and particularly to avoid uh, entry into the collecting system, or uh, for hyalur tumors, to avoid um, uh, inadvertent entry into the renal artery or vein. And if you're um, doing, um, if you're doing an off-clamp approach, which we'll talk about in the next slide, uh, you know, even um, if you enucleate, you're gonna have much less blood loss than if you take even a small amount of renal parenchyma. So to me, tumor nucleation and off-clamp uh, sort of go together in my mind. And so off-clamp. When do we do this? Well, um, a common scenario that, that we see uh, at the NCI are a patient that presents with multiple tumors, and we can't, we can't clamp the kidney long enough to safely get five tumors out without uh, detriment to the, uh, 
to the uh, renal remnants. So there are certain cases where we are obligated to at least tackle some of those off clamp. For the patient with a solitary kidney, uh, I think less ischemia uh, is better there, uh, particularly if, um, if you think there's gonna be prolonged ischemia, there are many times where you can start off clamp and only clamp for, for the deepest portion of the tumor to, uh, to really uh, make sure that your interval is not too long. For patients with previous kidney surgery, where the renal hilum is scarred, sometimes you can't uh, adequately clamp the, the renal vessels, and there are times that could be a consideration. And uh, particularly germane for patients with hereditary syndromes and planning for future surgeries. If we're dealing with a, a very exophytic tumor where it's not going to bleed this time, maybe we don't fully dissect the hilum um, because we know that in five to 10 years, we will have recurrent tumors and uh, they may be in a location that's not amenable to an off-clamp approach. So many people in their training have only done uh, wide excision partial nephrectomies. So what does it look like to do uh, a tumor nucleation? Let's see if this video will, yeah. So what we're doing in tumor nucleation, the, the hilum is not clamped here. We're really brushing every millimeter of parenchyma off until we see the very shiny surface of the uh, renal uh, tumor pseudocapsule. There's some bleeding that can, be, uh, that can be addressed with manual compression with a sucker. Uh, but uh, you can usually avoid arterial bleeding, and you can see that uh, in, if you're in the, uh, in the perfect enucleation plane where you, you don't have the strings, the fibers of renal parenchyma, that hemostasis can be, uh, can be uh, is, is not a challenge. And so the next step here would be to, to do your renorothy. So let's come back to this, um, uh, this case. So we decided to tackle the left side first, and you can see this is a, a large tumor and it does abut the, the renal sinus, but um, I thought that there was a higher chance of saving the kidney here than for, for the other side. So thinking about decision-making, we decided to tackle this robotically because it's large. Uh, even though it's posterior, because of the large size, uh, I did not think we would have adequate room via a, an RP approach. So we did transperitoneal. I did a wide excision because it's larger and I, I was worried about uh, oncologic efficacy. And because I'm doing, um, a wide excision because it's deep, I did elect to clamp the hilum. So what that looks like, we just saw um, a, a tumor nucleation. For wide excision, you really are starting not on the pseudocapsule, but just a little bit off. And the, the difference here, you can see the sort of the fibers of renal parenchyma rather than that smooth capsule. And that's how you know that you're in the wide excision plane rather than the tumor nucleation plane. We're clamped, so, uh, so blood loss, uh, is not really a consideration here. We have a nice uh, visible margin uh, throughout. And um, because this was larger, the ischemia time was about 29 minutes. We lost 350 cc's. And the pathology was consistent with an 8.5 centimeter chromophobe RCC, negative margins, and he had uh, good uh, kidney function at discharge. Now, interesting, the other side was biopsied as clear cell. This was a chromophobe. Um, you know, th there's only about an 80% concordance rate uh, when patients have sporadic patients present with multiple tumors. So we, we do see multiple histologies, um, and we have seen patients who have benign histologies. Maybe they have an oncocytoma and a clear cell on the other side. So something to always keep in mind, you can't assume that what is on one side is necessarily what is on the other. So... Six weeks later, it was time to tackle the right side. And so this is a completely endophytic tumor. 
you can see there's no bulge at the renal capsule. It's completely indefitted, covered by about uh, almost a centimeter of normal renal parenchyma. Uh, we decided to tackle this robotically. Again, transperitoneal, wide excision, and declamp. When we, uh, when we uh, went in, though, we, we saw the tumor on the ultrasound, you can see in the middle of the screen, and it is intimate with the renal sinus and the, the hilar vessels, as we circle there. Intimate with the vasculature. So you can do a partial nephrectomy here, uh, but my concern with a clear cell versus the chromophobe on the other side, a clear cell here uh, in this location um, can often be infiltrative into this uh, renal sinus fat. So we made the decision actually to convert this to a radical nephrectomy, uh, and I'm glad we did. This was uh, ended up being a Furman grade three clear cell with extension into the renal sinus fat, so a, a pathologic T3A. Um, happy to report the patient's doing well, uh, did not need renal replacement. His final GFR was around 40, so, so he does have CKD, um, but he is not at risk for, uh, for dialysis, and he's been tumor-free for the last 18 months. So case number two. This is a, a woman in her early 40s who um, contracted uh, COVID-19, had, uh, had some symptoms, so had chest imaging, and on that chest imaging was found to have a renal mass or renal masses. She was otherwise healthy with no comorbidities. Interestingly, she did have a family history of spontaneous pneumothorax, but no history of GEU malignancies. So this was the cross-sectional imaging that the patient had. You can see multiple large uh, renal masses uh, in both kidneys. Large, some are deep, some are abutting the sinus fat. So when we see a patient like this, how, how do you proceed with workup? Uh, and there are a lot of options here. We could think about biopsy. This is a patient who, uh, who is young, so maybe there are considerations for, uh, for hereditary uh, kidney cancer uh, causes as well. And so this is work that was done uh, by uh, Brian Shook when he was at the NCI looking at defining early onset kidney cancer. And uh, the, the crux of this paper was comparing the SEER database of patients with sporadic kidney cancer to those with a diagnosis of hereditary kidney cancer. And it was found that the sort of the cutoff that best predicted hereditary and had the sort of most false, uh, had the least uh, false positives for sporadic was at an age of 46 or less. And uh, work presented this meeting by, uh, by one of our fellows, Alexi Rumpaper-Dur. He uh, found that for patients with enrichment features for, uh, on, um, for hereditary kidney cancers, so for bilateral multifocal, for early onset, or for familial renal cell cancer, that the, the more of those features you have, the more likely you are to have a positive uh, germline uh, test. And so for this patient, um, we did do um, genetic testing. This patient had Berthog-Dubé, uh, a uh, alteration in the folliculin gene. We uh, decided to use a Sestamibi scan here to, uh, to further characterize this. Sestamibi is a uh, mitochondrial imaging agent and uh, for tumors that are mitochondrial rich, including oncocytoma uh, or uh, hybrid tumors seen in BHD, those are, will light up. These all lit up consistent with hybrid tumors. So because uh, this patient had 
Hybrid tumors, what, what's your thought to be of low genetic, uh, low biologic potential uh, in terms of metastasis and recurrence? We were able to offer this patient a robotic transperitoneal nucleation with a mixture of on-clamp and off-clamp uh, techniques. So this patient went uh, staged bilateral partial nephrectomies. Uh, six tumors were removed on the left side. Uh, the largest was eight centimeters. All were hybrid tumors. And five tumors were removed on the right. The largest were eight. Uh, all were hybrid. And the patient had a post-operative GFR uh, of 81. And what, what made this really possible was using uh, a nucleation rather than a wide excision. You can see the, uh, the post-operative scans here. So this patient is now uh, NED about, uh, about 12 months uh, after surgery now. So in terms of, of uh, partial nephrectomy, the decision on to perform, really you're weighing the oncologic risk versus competing risks of surgery for any individual patient. It requires the input of patient, tumor, and surgeon factors. What are you comfortable with? What is the patient uh, comfortable with in terms of the risk of surgery uh, versus uh, recurrence versus surgical complications? But being facile, really, with each of these uh, four axes gives you a lot of options. Uh, you know, two to the four are 16 different surgical options uh, for partial nephrectomy. And so I have just a, a couple minutes left, but I do want to briefly touch on how we think about cytoreductive nephrectomy. Now, this is a topic that's garnered a lot of attention uh, for many years, but especially in the last, uh, last three years with the, uh, with the publication of the Carmina and, and, and Surtime studies. So uh, just very briefly, this is a 47-year-old patient who presented with 10 pounds of weight loss, night sweats, and anemia. Imaging showed a left renal mass and multiple subcentimeter pulmonary nodules. She had hemoglobin of 8.3. All other labs were negative. So you know, you plug this into the calculator to the MSKCC or the IMVC calculator, and this was an intermediate, uh, IMVC intermediate um, uh, patient. And so we can see the, uh, the imaging of the renal mass on the, the video is not loading here, large renal mass. Um, and you can see the, um, on the chest imaging, we have uh, several pulmonary nodules, well, uh, round, well circumscribed pulmonary nodules. The largest is about nine millimeters, a total of three pulmonary nodules. So what are the treatment options uh, for, for a patient like this? Is this a, a, a patient a good candidate for upfront cytoreductive nephrectomy? Would a biopsy be helpful here? What about upfront systemic therapy? And uh, I'm sure that there could, there could be reasonable disagreement on the, on the best way to proceed for this patient. Um, maybe, maybe show of hands in the audience, who here would, would think about upfront cytoreductive nephrectomy for this patient? Okay. What about upfront systemic therapy? Okay. Yeah, about 50-50. So in, in this case, uh, the patient elected upfront cytoreductive nephrectomy. Uh, and the reason we felt good about this option was this patient had uh, large disease burden within the kidney, um, had pretty limited disease burden outside the kidney. You know, really such that we would not necessarily, um, this patient would not necessarily need to start systemic therapy right away. And the, the EAU guidelines suggest that if a patient has minimal disease uh, outside the kidney such that they would not require immediate therapy, maybe that's, that's, that could be an appropriate patient for cytoreductive nephrectomy. 
what was interesting is her anemia resolved. This was a perineoplastic anemia. It resolved completely. Her night sweats, fatigue, these symptoms all resolved. Uh, she did start ipinevo uh, two months after surgery, and she's alive with stable disease. She still has these pulmonary nodules that are really the same size as they were then. They, they were eventually biopsied. They were confirmed metastatic, but she's doing well. This patient also had a lymph node dissection because we saw uh, what we thought was an enlarged node at the time of surgery. It ended up being benign, but to, you know, it's a common question, what do we do, uh, when do we do lymph node dissections? And the, the answer that the literature currently supports, and this really comes from Mayo, which was a center that did a lot of lymph node dissections, is that it makes sense for a patient with clinically enlarged nodes. For most patients without clinically enlarged nodes, there's probably not a role for upfront lymphadenectomy. Now, there are some subtleties. We, there are some um, uh, diseases that we manage, like HLRCC, where maybe lymph node dissection upfront does make sense. But for the, for the average patient uh, who presents with a large renal mass, and uh, node negative, clinically node negative disease, these, those patients probably do not need a lymph node dissection. Uh, in the interest of time, I will uh, just show, to compare that first case, this was a patient that presented around the same time with a large renal mass and uh, what we thought was limited disease on the outside scan. When we uh, staged them with an MRI, you can see too numerous to count lesions within the liver. So this patient presented with hepatic, osseous, and, uh, and soft tissue disease, as well as enlarged lymph nodes. Who would do a, a, a cytoreductive nephrectomy for this patient? Yeah, this patient, uh, multiple uh, sites of disease, a lot of extra renal disease burden. So this patient uh, actually went on to have uh, systemic therapy. She was IMDC poor risks uh, with three, uh, three risk factors. And uh, she's done well now for about 18 months on systemic therapy, um, uh, although she has, has progressed through a couple of lines. So in the interest of time, um, these, there, there's some data that's in the handout that's available through the Swap Card app. I encourage you to look through the, the history of sort of why we've done cytoreductive nephrectomy in the past, maybe some of the challenges that the Carmina uh, data have, um, have added to that and to the, to the SIRTIME studies as well. But I will say that um, in the future, uh, there will probably be more of a role for patients to receive upfront systemic therapy uh, with, with consolidative nephrectomy Overall, I think surgery will still play a big role in the space, but I think that will change as we get better therapies. So thank you very much for your attention, and uh, happy to answer questions at the end, and uh, we'll move along. Thanks, Dr. Ball. Now, I'm very happy to introduce Dr. David McDermott, who's from the uh, Beth Israel uh, Deaconess. Harvard Cancer Center. We're thrilled to have him international expert in this. David, thank you for coming. I'd love to hear the exciting new work you've got. Okay, well, I always appreciate uh, getting invited to AUA, um, any surgical meeting, actually. I'm going back to, I'll tell this story as they work to get my slides up, I guess. Um, going back to medical school, I'm sort of a wannabe surgeon, you know, couldn't couldn't quite hack it, but I always looked up to a lot of my surgical colleagues in my class. They were always sort of the cool kids in class, and a lot of my chief residents were very impressive people. Um, you know, the other reason I like talking to surgeons is, you know, you guys say kind of cool things like the chance to cut is the chance to cure. You know, that was one of the big cliches back in medical school. Um, which always seemed interesting to me. And it's that 
point about surgical endpoints that you understand that actually many of my medical oncology colleagues don't focus on. Um, and immunotherapy, at least in some cases, you know, I focus on developing solid tumor immunotherapy, can deliver. Um, and, and that's what we'll talk about today. We'll talk a little bit about immune therapy for kidney cancer and its role, um, I hope, and then um, how it fits into your surgical management of your patients. It's, where are we with this? Yes, sir. You want me over there? Okay, we're gonna, we're just gonna get his slides up. Dr. McDermott's gonna go over and look. While he's doing that, uh, I wanna ask a couple of questions of uh, Dr. Ball. Dr. Ball, I wasn't really clear on the business about when to do lymphadenectomies or not. Could you give me that again? Just sort of, I'm yeah. seeing a patient, uh, when do I do lymphadenectomy? Absolutely. At least I'm so, straightforward. Yes, so, um, you know, it really boils down to, is there, are there enlarged nodes on imaging? So a patient who has enlarged nodes, uh, who is otherwise uh, is, is going to surgery, I think it makes sense for that patient to, to have a, a lymphadenectomy, and the data would support that not all patients with enlarged nodes will, will have um, metastatic disease in those nodes, but many will. Conversely, for the patient with clinically node negative, maybe they are, they're high risk, it's a large tumor, or there's a renal vein thrombus, the data doesn't support to do a routine lymphadenectomy in those patients. Granted, uh, sometimes there are, are game time decisions. You see something interop that you don't see on imaging. But to do that routinely would, would not be the, the answer that's supported by the literature in 2022. All right, let me add, great. So, okay, so that, that helps a lot. So let me ask another question. I'm a, little, I'm a little confused about this. So we talked about genetics and genes and all these different things about kidney cancer. That's great, it helps us think and all this, that, and the other. However, I'm out there, I'm a urologic surgeon. Patient comes to me with a, uh, I don't know, let's say a three centimeter renal mass. Um, when do I take it out? When do I not? When do I nucleate? When do I go wide? Also, uh, you know, I don't know. I hear about these papillary things. Maybe they can be worse. Okay, here's some guy comes. He's got no family history. He got nothing that I know. He doesn't know his family. I don't know anything. What do we do? When do, do you biopsy or not? Or kind of go on your radiologist on the imaging? I mean, you know, we've all seen some things that didn't turn out so well. Some did a partial at a positive margin. You know, what do you, how do we think about this? The, the nice thing about, about practicing today is we have more tools than we've ever had to, to attempt to risk stratify patients. I think that, um, you know, biopsy is increasingly utilized. And, you know, some people argue that you don't need to do biopsy because it doesn't change management. And it doesn't always, but there are many times it does. For, for a mask that maybe is located in a difficult location where radical nephrectomy is on the table, I think it makes a lot of sense to do biopsy. Um, you could, uh, you might, maybe the patient has an oncocytoma and, you, and you, they don't need a radical nephrectomy for a three centimeter oncocytoma. So I think that it's, in, it's imperative to discuss the option of biopsy with, with every patient and you know, counsel them accordingly about, uh, about the risks. We have uh, features we can glean from imaging uh, from both conventional imaging with contrast-enhanced MRI or CT. We also have newer nuclear imaging techniques like cystomuty scans that can differentiate oncocytomas and oncocytic tumors from, from clear cells and, and others. So for the, but for the patient where we, maybe we don't have some of these more, uh, more novel tools. They have a three centimeter tumor that looks amenable to partial nephrectomy. Does that patient need a nucleation? I, I probably would not because I don't know what we're dealing with. Maybe it's, maybe it's an aggressive clear cell. Um, 
Probably not, most of the time it won't be, but sometimes it will be, and, and you will regret that if you, if you take a, a minimum margin. Okay, let me ask Dr. Senator Vassin a question. Dr. Vassin, you heard Dr. Ball up here talking here, of course, a medical oncologist, and you know, work with, we all work together, but, but let me ask you this. Dr. Ball was talking about cytorectin nephrectomies for people with advanced disease, okay? Now, here are our audience, here we are. I'm a, I'm a urologist, I'm in the real world. I'm seeing a patient comes to me with advanced disease, I biopsy him, and, uh, you know, it's clear cell, but I biopsy him, it's papillary. You know, there's some funny papillaries out there and this, that, and the other. Uh, how does that make a difference in the, to where, of course, this, you know, it's a, joint, it's a joint thinking between the urologic surgeon and the medical oncologist, I realize that. But where do you come in on this? I mean, as far as, as far, I know you give a lot of thought to this, as far as active surveillance, uh, 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 cytoreductinephrectomies, and also, are there any people with metastatic disease, maybe kidney in place even, that you would say, well, let's don't do either. Let's just watch it. You know, what, what do you think? I know this is a little more complicated than I thought it was. What, what's your thinking on that? Uh, you know what, maybe we'll so hold Dr. that. Are you ready, Dr. Here, Dr. So maybe we should let him talk. And oh, here we go. Dr. McDermott's ready yeah. to go. So I'll come back to questions. We, we can, we can I, I want to hear then. your yeah. thoughts about that and Dr. McDermott's. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, so back towards surgical endpoints, I mentioned they're, they're more interesting, I think, than medical endpoints. Let's talk about how those play a role with immune therapy and solid tumors. Here are my disclosures. Um, I mentioned also that I look up to uh, several surgeons. This is one of them. This is a picture in the top left of Steve Rosenberg, uh, one of Dr. Lenhan's colleagues at the National Cancer Institute Surgery Branch. Um, he and others at the group essentially developed the field of solid tumor immunotherapy. Um, initially with cytokine therapy with high dose IL-2, you're looking at actually at an x-ray here of a patient with metastatic melanoma. In those days, this is pre-CT scan. You can see a dramatic response with high dose IL-2 in those patients. And this is a um, response duration curve that my colleague, um, Dr. Mike Atkins, is also shown on this picture, developed for patients receiving high dose IL-2 and kidney cancer. And you see patients with responses, those responses going out 10 years, well after, surgery, uh, well after therapy has stopped, those patients are living in remission of their disease. So essentially, high dose IL-2 proved an important principle that remission or cure was possible with solid tumor immunotherapy. But unfortunately, because these responses were relatively uncommon and the toxicity was significant and you were giving the, and medical oncologists would need to give this therapy um, who are less brave than surgeons uh, at the NCI, this, this approach did not really reach that many patients with either melanoma or kidney cancer. Um, not until some discoveries that actually led to a Nobel Prize um, in medicine a few years back that went to Dr. Hanjo, who's shown on this slide, not until we started to understand how tumors can actually shut off an immune response and maybe how we could block the interaction between tumors shutting it off an immune response and getting a tumor to, um, an immune system to kill a tumor, not until these discoveries of Dr. Gordon Freeman and others did we actually make major progress in the field of solid tumor immunotherapy, so-called Dr. Freeman helped us understand how pdl one expression on tumors could be blocked um, and could lead to tumor regressions? Did we start really making major progress in this disease? In kidney cancer, sort of the paper that led to the approval of PD-1 blockade with nivolumab um, was this one here in New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Mozart led this um, work. In patients who had failed prior VEGF therapy, nivolumab was superior to mTOR blockade. 
leading to its approval about seven years ago. But for most patients we see, a little background science here, most of the patients we see in the clinic with tumors actually present in what we call immune escape, as you can see on this slide, sort of the three E's of immune editing. Um, when you give them PD-1 blockade, you can reset that balance between the immune system and the tumor, uh, actually gaining more control over the immune uh, over the tumor, leading to sort of an equilibrium. But for most patients, in, mo in most cases, not just in kidney cancer, but for example in bladder cancer, we're not seeing the complete responses that we saw with high-dose IL-2. We're seeing sort of an equilibrium that's usually temporary for most patients. You know, they, we gain control, but eventually the tumor figures out how to escape. We're not eliminating uh, the tumor. So how might we do better as far as eliminating tumor? Well, the obvious next step for, for many in the field was let's think about combinations. Let's try to enhance the anti-tumor immune response by adding other agents that have been shown preclinically to enhance the immune response to the tumor. There was certainly some evidence that VEGF blockade did that in mouse models, either by improving the infiltration of T cells into the tumor or enhancing, for example, the impact of dendritic cells. Also, CTLA-4 blockade and its role in priming and activation of the immune system was thought to play a role. And in, so logical next steps, once we had PD-1 as our base, was let's add to it in, in different ways. And that's what folks did. And essentially, the, some of the initial trials were essentially fusing the old first line, which was VEGF blockade, with the new second line, which was uh, PD-1 blockade. And quite a few trials were launched with these uh, combinations. Um, the first one to show um, significant impact was this one here. Pembrolizumab and exitinib was shown to be superior to sunitinib in the frontline treatment of patients with metastatic kidney cancer. You know, um, you know essentially um, changing the changing the paradigm for how we treat many of these patients. Subsequently, that was built upon by the combination of PD-1 and CTLA-4. Once again, Dr. Mozart leading this, um, also showing superiority to sunitinib. So leading to also PD-1 and CTLA-4 becoming a standard approach for untreated um, kidney cancer patients with metastatic disease. We've essentially seen a series of, of positive pivotal trials in the frontline setting, most of which have the same design, um, most of which are VEGF plus PD-1. Um, nivolumab and, and CTLA-4 have been the only outlier from a mechanistic point of view. And we spend a lot of time at medical meetings trying to decide which regimen of these options should be favored. Um, if you look at sort of the clinical take-homes of these different approaches when you're trying to decide what to offer your patients, there are pluses and minuses with each approach. As shown on this slide, with PD-1 and VEGF, we see improved survival, which is great, but we also see higher response rates and a small number of patients whose progression of disease is their best response and longer times of progression-free survival. With CTLA-4, we see overall survival improvements, and we see what we'll focus a little bit about. We also see durable responses and the potential to stop treatment um, and the, having the benefit be maintained. And, you know, we could spend some time debating this question. Honest, honestly, I don't know that you care all that much, and to me, it's kind of a waste of time because 
It would require us to do cross-trial comparisons, which we all know are flawed. These trials have unequal follow-up durations, so it's hard to make comparisons. And also, when we're talking in front of medical oncologists, there's no agreement on what I would call the hierarchy of endpoints. Like, what endpoints for these trials are most important for you or most important for your patients? And we'll talk a little bit about that, getting back to my surgical days. You know, early endpoints I would describe as endpoints that happen, you know, in the first two years of treatment. These are favored by industry for obvious reasons to try to get answers to their questions early. Um, and they're also used by the FDA for many of our approvals. They're certainly important for symptomatic patients. So if you have a patient with metastatic kidney cancer who's symptomatic, you want a response. Um, so an agent which, like VEGF and PD-1 that would offer you a chance at a major response early could be preferred. But late endpoints are often important for patients. Um, and I would describe late endpoints as those that develop after two years of treatment. These are also favored by many of you in, in surgery and by our colleagues in stem cell transplant, where you see a patient with a tumor, you take the tumor out, and you walk away. Um, and the patient, and you only congratulate yourself if the tumor's all gone, you know? No one, no one pats themselves on the back for a partial resection of a tumor. Um, and because it allows the patient to live in remission, off treatment, and not, in, not needing a referral to medical oncology. And the, the endpoints that measure a durable response are things like duration of response, landmark progression-free survival, and long-term overall survival. But I'd like to add a third class of endpoints into this discussion, which are the so-called durable endpoints. And like surgery, they develop after treatment stops. Um, and many of my medical oncology colleagues are actually very hesitant to stop treatment, even when it's working. But it's also often favored by patients, because as soon as you come off treatment, you come off the side effects of treatment. And we're developing a, a sort of a comprehensive measurement of the benefits of immune therapy we call treatment-free survival, which I'll talk about in a second, which tries to give us a sense of both the pluses and the minuses of immune therapy for a population. So when, we, when we're comparing these studies, what do we see with more follow-up? Well, interestingly, when you look at overall survival, the overall survival numbers for PD-1 VEGF were tremendous initially. But with more follow-up, the hazard ratio for overall survival is going up in many of these studies. And also, if you look at the favorable risk group, which is the group where VEGF levels are the highest in general, um, hazard ratios are going up even more dramatically in that group, which is not what you would expect, I think, if blocking VEGF was leading to an improved immune response to the tumor. In, in contrast, when you look at PD-1, CTLA-4 over time, while the hazard ratio for overall survival was not as impressive early on, when you look at follow-up, those hazard ratios are staying stable, and they're actually improving for favorable risk patients. Moving to progression-free survival, comparing the two approaches, you see a plateau in the progression-free survival curve for PD-1 and CTLA-4. About a third of patients um, are alive, progression-free on that trial, um, at five years. Many of those patients are in remission of their disease, whereas with PD-1 VEGF, those curves are sagging. Now, they may develop a plateau over time, but they haven't yet. Um, and this may be true for a number of these different combinations. So when deciding which option of PD-1-based combination therapy is best for your patients, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. An early improvement, then PD-1-VEGF makes sense. 
a durable improvement. So far, the data with PD-1C TLA4 are encouraging, but we need more follow-up. And, and then we'll talk a little bit at the end of this talk about the durable um, outcomes that we see post-treatment, so-called treatment-free survival. You know, but comparing these regimens, you know, we could spend a lot of time doing that, but I think the actual more important question is if we can create remissions of metastatic kidney cancer, if you actually believe that's possible, um, if your answer to that question is yes, then I think as a field, what we need to do is work to make that more common as our primary goal, not the only goal, but as our primary goal. So, um, you know, my colleagues, as Dr. Lenahan mentioned at DFHEC, are focused a lot on that. This is the group who uh, leads that effort up in Boston, and I'm going to talk a lot about their work. One of the things we focus on to try to make cures more common in kidney cancer is to continue to rationally apply this approach through developing biomarkers uh, that are predictive of response, because ultimately immune therapy should not be provided broadly to all of our patients. There are just some patients, particularly those who do not have a pre-existing immune response to their tumor, that are never going to benefit from immune therapy. So how do we identify those patients? Well, in kidney cancer, it is not easy, in part because of what we see in many of our patients, this so-called intratumoral heterogeneity that the, um, the group from England, um, the Tracer RX group, has, has told us about for over a decade. This makes biomarker development almost impossible in kidney cancer, but doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue it. And there are many different groups that have pursued many different um, tissue-based biomarkers for outcome. The best one, at least at the moment right now, and this goes back to your original questions, is probably sarcomatoid histology where if you look at patients with some aspect of sarcomatoid histology in their tumor and their long-term outcomes, their, their plateaus on their survival curves are impressive, even better than all comers. So of all of these, probably progression-free survival is, at least at the moment, the best predictor of outcome. If you see a patient like that, they should almost certainly get PD-1-based blockade therapy initially. We're taking this even further. This is a recent publication in Cancer Cell trying to subset individual kidney tumors based on molecular signatures. These are RNA signatures in the tumor, um, and we're, we're, we're making some progress, but it's not yet ready for a t time as sort of a companion diagnostic. But with this work, it looks like tumors, not surprisingly, who have a RNA signature that's full of uh, T effector cell signatures, they're more likely to respond to immune therapy. Those tumors with VEGF signatures more likely to respond to VEGF alone. And then there's some patients who are not going to benefit from either approach, and we shouldn't be offering them immune therapy, uh, in my opinion. Um, we were asked to provide a case. This is one of uh, my patients, a 65-year-old man um, with the past medical history of obesity and diabetes, had a large right renal mass, otherwise um, you know, normal uh, blood tests. He underwent a nephrectomy uh, for this tumor that you see here in the, uh, the right renal mass. And then the question was, the patient was referred to us for consultation. The question is, what's the most appropriate next step for this patient? And you see your choices. Um, and there, there is potentially more than one right choice to this. But number, the answer number four is going to become an increasingly correct answer, potentially, for these patients, um, based on this trial here that was uh, published in the middle of last year in the New England Journal of Medicine. This looks at bringing immune therapy earlier into the paradigm, which is where we're starting to see some encouraging results in multiple uh, tumor types. This is bringing it mainly into stage uh, three patients, 
comparing it uh, to placebo. Dr. Shuari um, led this study. And here is, this is the so-called Keynote 564 study where patients were randomized to receive pembrolizumab for up to a year. Um, and here are the results. Disease-free survival improved for patients um, getting uh, PD-1 blockade with the hazard ratio of 0.68. This was an encouraging result and led to the drug's approval. Um, and if you look at that improvement, though, based on a different uh, pre-treatment characteristics, it's a lot of the benefit is being driven by, at least at the moment, by patients who presented with metastatic disease and had their disease resected, and then they went on the study. So time will tell if this is an approach that we should be broadly applying to all of our patients or just to patients with more aggressive uh, cancers um, or more aggressive uh, presentations. And if one of the interesting things, at least initially, is there seems to be at least a small uh, survival signal. Obviously, there are not many events driving this, but this will be important in determining who we use this for, is does this survival signal last with time? Um, it may or may not. In, in, um, you know, what are we learning from other tumor types as it relates to adjuvant therapy while also treat melanoma? And we steal a lot of great ideas uh, from them because it's been a, pro a therapeutic proving ground for a lot of solid tumor immunotherapy. Well, if you look at immunotherapy application in melanoma, it's approved right now for all stage three patients in the US based on uh, this data and other data. But essentially, it's not being used for 3A patients at most academic centers in large part because there's probably not a great balance between the toxicity that you see with the agent and the true risk of patients recurring. So this is sort of a post-approval modification that many of us have used just to follow 3A patients, which are frankly the most common patients we see in academic centers. Uh, and this could happen also in kidney cancer, meaning a blanket approval early that gets modified, um, hopefully, by uh, tissue-based biomarkers um, in the future. And, you know, just sort of getting to the end of my talk, I want to talk a little bit about novel endpoints that might appeal to surgical colleagues. Uh, this is the so-called treatment-free survival uh, comprehensive um, method that I, I mentioned earlier, where we're looking at survival states over the course of all of the patients on a study and, and how they do. You know, in purple, when they were on protocol therapy, in blue, when they were on the study but off therapy, um, in gray, they're on the subsequent treatment, and obviously black is uh, death. Um, what, we actually compared outcomes, you know, comparing treatment-free survival and survival states with PD-1 versus VEGF. And not only was overall survival, as I mentioned, greater with immune therapy than VEGF blockade, but treatment-free survival was twice as long. So you are more likely to be alive and twice as likely to be alive off treatment. Now, that's at risk, you know, so obviously immune therapy brings greater potential durable risk, and we're also measuring durable toxicity as part of this, um, as part of this method. But it's a trade-off that's at least worth a discussion um, with patients, in our opinion. What else are we doing? What are we learning from actual patient tumors besides prediction criteria that might improve our immune response to the tumor? We're actually trying to interrogate the tumor microenvironment to develop new therapies. I don't have too much time to talk about this, um, but things like neoantigen-based vaccines, novel immune checkpoints, CAR T-cells are being developed in kidney cancer, and TIL therapy is also being developed in kidney cancer. Some of my colleagues at Harvard are trying to use information from the tumor to say, you know, what are the best targets um, 
you know, we should be going after. This is work by David Braun, who's now at Yale, and Kathy Wu, who's up at Dana-Farber, you know, using single-cell sequencing to identify exhaustion targets. Um, one of the targets they found is present in a lot of the immune cells in kidney tumors is LAG3, which is another immune uh, checkpoint pathway. Recently, in melanoma, once again, stealing from melanoma, um, PD-1 plus LAG3 has been shown to be superior than uh, PD-1 alone. Uh, and has gotten FDA approval in combination of melanoma. We're trying to use the data that Kathy and David have generated to hopefully convince companies to develop this combination um, in kidney cancer, trying to do it in a rational way. There's a lot going on back here. Um, it, the, uh, also, we're trying to develop even novel checkpoints that haven't been identified by industry. Once again, going back to Gordon Freeman here and my colleagues at uh, Beth Israel, Kathleen Mahoney, and Rupal Bhatt, identifying a, a new pathway they think could be important, the so-called HHLA2, KIR3, DL3 pathway. This is a pathway that's normally stimulatory to T cells, but they've actually found a, um, a receptor that's actually inhibitory um, to T cells that can be drugged. Um, and this pathway is present, expressed on many different tumors. So they're hoping to drug this pathway in similar ways that we drug CTLA-4 in hopes of um, enhancing an immune response to a tumor. So once again, taking human samples and trying to identify um, a new targets for immune therapy. I mentioned a CAR-T is also in early development. TIL therapy, where you t this goes back to the early days at the NCI, and I'll finish up here, where you actually take the patient's tumor, you take it out uh, surgically, you um, prepare the patient's immune system by suppressing it with chemotherapy, and you give back these energized uh, tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes in the context of HIDOSIL-2, so it's sort of the kitchen sink of immune therapy. This has shown some impressive results in melanoma and lung cancer and cervical cancer, and we're hoping to bring it um, into kidney cancer, at least in the clinical trial space. It's possible this will get FDA approved for melanoma sometime in the next uh, year. There are several companies working on this. So I hope I've been able to convince you that my colleagues are doing some good work bringing immune therapy closer to the front, uh, to the earlier in the disease with adjuvant PD-1 blockade importantly focusing on endpoints that are surgical in many ways but focus on patients and their um, their desire to live in remission of their disease like treatment-free survival um, and also you know folks are doing some interesting scientific work Marson mentioned this earlier and Ram will talk about this in his next talk um, my colleague Bill uh, Kalin won the Nobel Prize for some of his work in targeted therapy for kidney cancer, um, you know, lo looking at targeting the, the HIF2-alpha transcription factor, and you'll hear more about that in the next talk, uh, assuming it's happening. Um, and, and hopefully we'll get to the point by throwing all of this together um, that the standard therapy when we get together maybe 10 years from now is we're going to rationally apply immune therapy based on the profiling of the tumor microenvironment, and increasingly, uh, second-line therapy will not be necessary because we'll have more patients uh, living in remission, um, you know, and not on therapy. Uh, so these are my uh, colleagues who contributed to all this work, obviously my NCI folks, colleagues um, who I cherish, who worked, you know, hard on the VHL HIF story. That will be in the story in the next talk. Um, but we're excited to be here, and I'm glad to take any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. McDermott. I mean, it's just...
uh, amazing to me uh, to think about where we are with the science, how much it's going to impact how we as urologic surgeons manage patients with you. And, uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned till therapy. I remember the first, you're not going to believe this, but the first till therapy given to a human was grown in my laboratory by Ari Beldegrun, if you can believe that, way back when he was a fellow. And we treated a he treated a patient uh, one evening uh, with that. And patient actually had a very nice response. And uh, anyway, while we're getting uh, Dr. Srinivasan's slide, sorry about the IT issues, but we're getting it all squared away. Let me ask you a question, though. I'm kind of interested to know a couple things. One, um, what would you, and I love your emphasis on cures. You know, that's what we need to be focusing on. Now, what would you get? I know you did a lot of thinking about this and presented some incredibly exciting data. We've made so much progress. Let me ask you the following. What would you think, with all your years of experience, as far as what might be the final solution? What might lead to cures? Okay, why don't you go ahead and answer that in the Dr. Well, I think at the moment... I mean, I combination of drugs, targeted, plus immuno, what do you think? Well, um... I think we're already curing patients with metastatic disease. We've been doing it for 30 years with immune therapies like high-dose IL-2. We do it with combination PD-1 blockade now, but we have to be willing to see that outcome. We have to be willing to stop the treatment in our best responding patients, which a lot of colleagues in industry is certainly not, they're not willing to explore stopping drugs. So I think that those cures are out, certainly those remissions are out there. Um, but it's not all going to be an immune therapy story. There are patients with, whose tumors are going to be completely resistant to immune therapy, and then we need to be developing novel targets for those patients. We're going to hear some of that in this talk now. I don't think targeted therapy is dead for kidney cancer, but we need to be more like our lung cancer colleagues where we identify the pathway that's driving the tumor and we provide the drug based on that instead of what we're doing now, which is sort of a broad application of all the drugs that we have I think that's going to slow us down. And that's where the, unfortunately, that's where the field is going as the next step. I didn't get into this, but we're starting to go into triplets for just all, all covers. And I honestly think that's going to slow us down, okay. personally. All right. I'm happy to have Dr. Ramsarnavasan. He's going to talk about novel treatments for kidney cancer genes to therapy. Dr. Srinivasan. Thank you, Dr. Linehan. And it's a pleasure to be here this, uh, this morning to be wrapping up this uh, session. Uh, and I think Dr. McDermott's comments, you know, provide a great segue into the topics I'm going to be covering today. Uh, I'm a medical oncologist by trade, uh, but I've worked with uh, urolo urologists and urologic oncologists for the last 17 to 20 years. Uh, and I can tell you confidently that uh, over this period, I've started thinking a little bit more like urologists. And I dare say that uh, my urology colleagues have started thinking a little bit more like me. I think it's good for the field that... Uh, uh, you know, multiple lines of thought come together because I think that, I think, is the way to true development. Uh, one of the common jokes uh, within our group is that I recommend more surgical procedures than the surgeons do. Uh, it's easy for me to do because I'm not actually doing the procedures. They are. Uh, but uh, hopefully I'll show you over the next uh, 20 minutes or so how working together as a group, urologists, medical oncologists, basic scientists, has really helped us advance you know, some really novel ideas uh, into the clinic. Uh, and uh, we'll see at the end of the talk what do you think. Dr. Linehan talked to you about how diverse uh, kidney cancer is. And just because we call 
these, uh, these various entities kidney cancer. It doesn't mean they're all identical. A variety of different genes uh, driving a variety of different histologic subtypes of cancer, all of which seem to occur in the kidney. Um, with all the knowledge we have about how these different forms of kidney cancers arise and uh, occur, it would be a shame if we didn't exploit that knowledge really to design targeted therapeutic strategies that were individualized for these uh, distinct subtypes. And that's what we have tried to do uh, in our group uh, over the last 15 years or so. Um, I'm going to be spending most of my time here today talking about uh, specific forms of clear cell kidney cancer and papillary kidney cancer, the two most common forms of RCC that we encounter in clinical practice. As you know, uh, the basis for targeted therapy approaches in patients with clear cell kidney cancer uh, has really been uh, uh, understanding the VHL pathway. So most of the early treatment options that we've had for treating patients with advanced clear cell kidney cancer came from an understanding of how loss of the VHL gene uh, leads to kidney cancer formation. And uh, while we were initially unable to target some of the key downstream events uh, that followed VHL loss, we were able to successfully target several downstream consequences of uh, these, uh, uh, of, of these events, uh, and successfully for quite some time. Uh, with the advent of immune checkpoint inhibitors, as Dr. McDermott mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, the, the treatment in the last four to five years of uh, clear cell kidney cancer has uh, altered dramatically. We use combinations of checkpoint inhibitors, nivolumab plus ipilimumab, uh, as Dr. Uh, Dr. McDermott mentioned, uh, in the treatment of some patients with advanced clear cell kidney cancer, but also used widely uh, combinations of immune checkpoint inhibitors and the very same uh, you know, targets that, uh, uh, agents that target uh, consequences of VHL inactivation. Axetinib, for instance, cabozantinib is another agent that's been combined successfully with immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, Lenvatinib is a, a third agent uh, that is commonly in, used in combination with immune checkpoint inhibitors in the management of patients with advanced clear cell kidney cancer. While understanding the VHL pathway has really helped uh, us more effectively treat patients with advanced sporadic forms of clear cell kidney cancer, uh, we asked how we can utilize that information to treat patients with, with VHL disease, uh, a condition that uh, urologists are a lot more familiar with uh, than medical oncologists. Uh, VHL disease needs no introduction to most of you. As you know, it's a multi-system cancer disorder, uh, predisposing patients to develop uh, tumors and multiple organ systems, including bilateral multifocal clear cell RCC. Uh, the story begins in the early 80s when Marston Linehan, Birdzabar, and others at the NCI decided that they needed to try and understand why patients with VHL get these cancers. And so they collected families uh, with, with, this, with the syndrome uh, and very carefully studied them to identify a gene called the VHL gene located on chromosome 3 uh, that seemed to uh, be altered in the germline of these affected patients. We now know that the very same gene is altered uh, by somatic mutations in patients with sporadic forms of clear cell kidney cancer. It took another 15 years or so to fully understand how loss of the VHL gene leads to kidney cancer. A uh, lot of work done both in Dr. Linehan's lab, labs of these gentlemen who won the 
uh, in a Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology in 2019, uh, uh, and a number of other labs uh, who I can't really mention in this, in this short talk, uh, really allowed us to understand that hypoxia uh, or pseudo-hypoxia is a key element uh, mediating VHL-dependent kidney cancer. And that is what led to all the efforts I've talked about so far that uh, effectively target uh, alterations in this pathway. So um, why should we even be looking at systemic therapy for patients with VHL? Uh, how do we manage patients with VHL? You heard a little bit about this from Dr. Linehan uh, and Dr. Ball. Uh, the goals of treating patients with VHL are twofold. One is to minimize the risk of metastasis, uh, and this is applicable to those tumors which have metastatic potential, kidney cancer, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, pheochromocytoma. Uh, but we also uh, treat patients uh, with tumors with a view to controlling local symptoms or systemic complications. Once metastatic, we don't really know how to treat these patients, and we treat them the way we would sporadic counterparts of the respective histologists, histologic subtypes. Uh, while these treatments have been very effective and we have managed to treat patients with uh, VHL quite effectively with surgical techniques, uh, any of you who has treated VHL knows that these surgical approaches are associated with significant comorbidities because you often have to repeat surgeries multiple times during a patient's lifetime with all the you know, uh, morbidities those procedures incur. So there's a real need to develop therapies that may give patients a break from, from surgery, or at least minimize the number of surgeries they may have to go through in their lifetime. Uh, and that is why we and others became interested in developing systemic therapies for these, these patients. Uh, an ideal systemic therapy would be able to achieve a lot of the things that surgery does. Uh, so prevent tumor growth, prevent the potentially uh, onset of new tumors, which surgery can't necessarily do, uh, minimize the risk of metastasis, but also provide a quality of life that's acceptable and allow these patients to go about their business uh, uh, as, as normally as possible. <clears throat> Initial attempts to treat these patients with systemic therapy uh, utilized uh, VEGF-targeted agents. Uh, several trials are listed here. Uh, and I'll quickly summarize what we saw with those trials using these two uh, drugs and studies as, as an example. We saw some activity uh, particularly in renal tumors associated with VHL, when we treated patients with, uh, with uh, vandetinib, azopinib, sunitinib, and other agents in this category. Uh, we didn't see a whole lot of activity in non-renal tumors, uh, but what we did see a lot of was side effects. Uh, many of these patients uh, were unwilling to accept the side effects that patients with metastatic kidney cancer who had you know, very limited alternatives were willing to accept. So as a result, most patients went on study and off-study fairly quickly. And so this was not really a long-term viable option. Of course, what we'd have really liked to do was target HIF2, which we know is a very key driver of uh, kidney cancer in, in the uh, VHL-deficient uh, setting. Uh, this is a very difficult target to drug, uh, and it took you know, a couple of decades of efforts to really nail down a method to try and target these, uh, uh, target HIF with small molecules. Uh, uh, and the result was a, a class of agents, small molecules, that was able to effectively disrupt uh, the formation of a heterodimer of HIF2 and uh, HIF2-alpha and HIF1-beta, a heterodimerization that's essential for function of, of this transcription factor. 
the first agent uh, in this category was called PT2385. Uh, and we at the NCI did a very small proof of concept study looking at this agent in patients with VHL-associated renal tumors. Very early on in the study, it became very clear that this drug was different. The, the tolerability profile is much better than what we saw with uh, VEGF-targeted agents. And we also saw very ready regression of tumors in the kidney, in neuroendocrine, uh, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, CNS hemangioblastomas, and even uh, eye uh, angiomas. Uh, so we were very, very excited. Uh, but there were some pharmacokinetic limitations to this particular drug, which fortunately uh, the uh, uh, scientists at Peloton, the company that, uh, uh, that, that developed these drugs, was able to overcome by developing a second-generation HIF-2-alpha inhibitor called Belzurifan, uh, also known by various other names listed here. So we then took this drug uh, in collaboration with a number of other VHL experts around the world uh, and with uh, Peloton and Merck and designed a, a multi-center global study to evaluate the efficacy of this drug in patients with VHL-associated RCC. The primary endpoint of the study was overall response rate in kidney tumors, but we also looked very carefully at toxicity of this agent as well as uh, responses in non-renal lesions. We enrolled a total of 61 patients. Uh, the trial accrued fairly rapidly, which was uh, surprising to us, but also gratifying because this is a relatively rare uh, condition. Um, uh, the, the patient demographics were very typical of what you would expect for this, uh, this group of patients. But in addition to pa uh, kidney cancer, uh, all patients had at least one pancreatic lesion, uh, including uh, 22 patients who had a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. 50 patients had a central nervous system hemangioblastoma, and 16 had evidence of a retinal hemangioblastoma that we could follow on study. Uh, the overall response rate uh, in renal tumors in uh, this study with this agent was uh, close to 50%. Uh, these responses, uh, at least at the time of this analysis, were all partial responses, so we were not curing patients, which it's a hard, difficult bar, as you know, because uh, you, you're, not, you're never really going to change the germline alterations and the predisposition to, uh, to tumors. Uh, but we were very, very happy to see that half the patients had objective, recess-defined uh, partial responses. Uh, when you actually looked at uh, how many patients had regression in their tumors, a uh, much larger proportion, 92% had some degree of tumor regression. Uh, Knowing what we do about the way these, uh, this particular class of drugs work, it is very likely that we'll see the response rates uh, increasing overall. But what's key here is that a, a very, very overwhelming majority of patients did develop uh, or did exhibit tumor regression. Uh, this graph illustrates how we managed to alter the natural history of these tumors. On the left side, you will see the growth curves of these tumors that we had very, very carefully followed pre-treatment for years on, on many of these patients. Uh, and the, the natural history is one of inexorable growth uh, in the absence of intervention. So the intervention usually uh, until the study was surgery, which would occur when the predefined criteria were met. But you can see when we introduced belzutifan, the vast majority of tumors either didn't grow at the same rate or many of them actually started uh, regressing. Uh, we talked a little bit about durable responses uh, when Dr. Uh, McDermott is up here on the podium a few minutes ago. Uh, at least as of now, the uh, responses with this agent seem very, very durable. 
at the time of this analysis, with the median follow-up of around two years, 89% uh, of the patients remained on study. And as you can see from the swimmer's plot, most of them had ongoing uh, clinical benefit. I'm going to show you a couple of cases of the kind of patients we treated on this study uh, and why uh, this uh, drug's likely to make a really significant impact on how we treat this group of patients. Uh, the first is a 45-year-old woman who was diagnosed at the age of 34 with VHL uh, when uh, a left-sided uh, renal tumor was identified. Uh, she underwent a partial nephrectomy uh, and continued to be surveyed uh, sub subsequently. When she came to us, uh, she was very desirous of you know, avoiding uh, additional surgical procedures. Uh, came to us with bilateral renal tumors, the largest of which was around 2.6 centimeters, so heading towards surgery. She also had a couple of pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors and some CNSC mangioblastomas. Shown here is a fairly large, uh, uh, close to the hilum, renal tumor on the left kidney and a couple of renal tumors on the right kidney, all of which very, very clearly and rapidly regressed uh, following uh, initiation of Belzirifan. So clearly at this point in time, this patient does not need surgery. At best, uh, I'm sorry, at worst, we have set the clock back by several years. So it's unlikely that this patient would, have needed, would need surgery as quickly as she would have in the absence of this intervention. We're also seeing very impressive responses in non-renal lesions. Uh, in pancreatic tumors, we see an overall response of 77%, uh, including uh, regression in 90% of patients with pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, and around a third of patients with CNS hemangioblastomas have very clearly demonstrated regression. These tumors are a little harder to follow, and I suspect the true response rate is probably a little higher, but this is what we found in the study. Uh, I'm going to show you a second case here of a 30-year-old man diagnosed with VHL, the age of 12, uh, you know, very, very difficult uh, in our life for somebody who gets diagnosed at that early age with tumors everywhere. I mean, he had tumors in every organ you can conceive. Uh, over the years, he had to undergo multiple laser cryoablation, of, uh, and laser and cryoablations of retinal hemangioblastomas and had bilateral vitrectomies. He's had seven, no less than seven surgeries to uh, facilitate resections of hemangioblastomas in the CNS. Uh, so you can imagine the impact these procedures uh, have had on the quality of life of this, uh, this patient. He came to us with bilateral multifocal RCC that were heading towards a surgical threshold and new multiple cerebellar and CNS hemangioblastomas. Um, on the top panel, we show you two hemangioblastomas, uh, uh, one in the, in the thoracic spine and one in the left cerebellum. Uh, we work very closely with Dr. Prashant Chitibayana and Dr. Karim Zaglul, neurosurgeons uh, at the NIH, in the management of these patients. And I'm glad to say, at least in this case, Dr. Chitibayana's services will not be needed. Uh, you see very, very clear regression uh, in both the tumors uh, illustrated uh, in, in, on this slide. Uh, ocular lesions contribute significantly to the morbidity of uh, patients with VHL. Many patients... Uh, you know, go blind. Uh, the patient I presented previously uh, was blind in both eyes because of multiple retinal hemangioblastomas. Uh, for the first time, uh, our ophthalmologists, uh, Dr. Chu and Henry Wiley, who work very, very closely with us in the management of these patients, told us that they've seen impressive regressions of uh, hemangioblastomas in the eye with a systemic agent. Uh, so far, there's nothing they've tried that's worked but uh, we see very, very predictable, very uh, you know, uh, impressive regressions in hemangioblastomas with this, with this drug. So one of the key goals of developing a drug like this would be to try and 
delay uh, the need for surgery or obviate the need for surgery altogether. And, and this graph illustrates a little bit of what we have achieved on that front uh, with this drug. Uh, to the left of the solid black perpendicular vertical line that you see are the black dots that indicate surgical procedures in patients with VHL before belzudifan, uh, uh, before they receive belzudifan. And you can see a number of black dots, so these uh, number into the hundreds over the last several years. In fact, if you just look at the preceding two years, uh, which is approximately the length of follow-up we have on therapy for these patients, you still see several procedures uh, that these patients have had to undergo. Uh, following initiation of belzirifan, we only had three procedures uh, that were needed in these patients. So short follow-up, but early indications are that we may actually be impacting how we manage these patients and minimizing the need for surgery in these patients. Uh, I also said that it would be good to have a drug that was well-tolerated, and this drug fits the bill, certainly far better than the wedge of targeted agents do. Uh, while most patients had side effects, most of the side effects were mild and manageable. The most common and uh, very predictable side effect, because it uh, follows from the biology of uh, uh, HIF2 and uh, how this uh, drug targets that pathway, was anemia. Uh, anemia is mostly uh, seen uh, in a, a few weeks after we initiated therapy, and tended to stabilize over time. Uh, most patients could be managed very effectively without a need for uh, stopping or discontinuing the drug. Uh, patients were managed either expectantly or occasionally with uh, uh, erythropoietin uh, and even more rarely with uh, blood transfusions. Uh, so uh, most other side effects were very, very mild, fatigue being chief amongst them. But most patients were able to lead a lifestyle comparable to what they had before they initiated therapy. As you're probably aware, these data were recently uh, presented in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, as you're probably also aware, uh, these data led in August of 2021 to the approval of this agent for patients with organ-confined uh, tumors associated with VHL. So as a result of uh, these developments, we now have an FDA-approved systemic therapy for the management of VHL-associated tumors for the first time. Uh, and implications, clinical implications of this approval are that some VHL patients can now be managed medically. And I emphasize the word some because I think we have to be very careful about whom we treat and how we treat them. Uh, I look at this agent as being a complement for conventional uh, management strategies like surgery and cryoablation and so on and so forth. Uh, and I do believe uh, that in the long run, you will see a lot of patients avoid or delay surgery as a result of uh, the, the, this, this treatment and treatments like this. I will also emphasize that while it's tempting to have everybody who has access to this drug treat patients with VHL with this drug, uh, care of the VHL patient is still very difficult and requires a very uh, you know, dedicated uh, and experienced multidisciplinary team. Uh, we still have a lot to learn, but I think this is a very promising beginning in uh, treating VHL patients. Uh, this drug has also shown efficacy in uh, patients with advanced metastatic uh, sporadic clear cell kidney cancer, and shown here is a waterfall plot from a study Dr. Shuedi conducted. Uh, it's a phase uh, uh, one, two study of this agent uh, uh, showing you know, uh, promising activity, uh, which has 
led to the development of uh, randomized phase three study in previously treated patients uh, with met metastatic kidney cancer. Patients are randomized to this drug versus Evrolimus. The trial has completed approval and we're waiting to read out the data. So I, I think we can learn from uh, the foregoing you know, uh, slides that uh, understanding the VHL pathway has allowed us to effectively intervene in patients with both sporadic uh, forms of clear cell kidney cancer and VHL-associated tumors. Um, a number of other uh, HIF2-alpha inhibitors are now in early clinical development, and we and others are trying to figure out how best to improve upon the benefits of uh, HIF2-alpha inhibitors that we've gleaned so far from the studies uh, I just presented. I'm going to spend the next few minutes talking about papillary kidney cancer, which is the second most common form of kidney cancer. Until recently, there were no effective forms of treatment for this, uh, uh, this, uh, this entity, or this group of entities, I must say, uh, as I'll point out in a minute or two. Uh, the first uh, dedicated papillary kidney cancer study to show a clear benefit for any intervention was this study called the PAPMED study led by Dr. Samantha Paul and others, which showed a superiority uh, for cabozantinib uh, versus sunitinib in patients with metastatic papillary kidney cancer. Uh, unfortunately, the median PFS was only nine months and the overall response rate only 23%. Um, and uh, we and others are hopeful that by understanding the biology of these tumors better, we may actually be able to improve these numbers. And I'll show you a couple of examples of how we may do that. Uh, we, we, we know that cabozantinib uh, is a MET as well as a VEGFR inhibitor. Uh, going back a few years, uh, uh, we and others uh, conducted a study with another similar agent called furetinib, which was uh, the first-in-class MET inhibitor evaluated in patients with kidney cancer. It also had uh, you know, uh, it, it also could target VEGFR, uh, as, uh, as, as shown here. Uh, several people uh, that are involved with the treatment of papillary kidney cancer, Dr. Shweri, Dr. McDermott, were all involved with the study. And what we learned from the study was that, uh, just as with the PAPMED study, not a lot of patients uh, benefited from the study if you took all comers with papillary kidney cancer. However, if you look at patients with germline met alterations, uh, really the part population which you would expect most to benefit from a MET inhibitor, uh, you saw a much higher response rate, a response rate of 50%, small numbers, but regardless, a uh, high response rate. Uh, while if you didn't have a MET alteration, your response rate is only 9%. Uh, so early indications that uh, if you had a MET mutation, you might do much better with a MET inhibitor. Uh, other studies, again, small studies, have confirmed this observation. Uh, there's a study from Europe looking at crizotinib. We have a study with cabmatinib, uh, which has shown very, very similar results and extended the data that we have regenerated uh, 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 with the study. Uh, more recently, investigators at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center have looked at cabozantinib in combination with nivolumab and are starting to show some uh, you know, promising activity in patients with papillary kidney cancer. We still need to figure out who are most likely to benefit from this approach. They present some uh, you know, early molecular data that suggests that some subgroups may benefit uh, from this approach more than others, and it's these kinds of studies that we really need to move the field forward. Uh, the story with papillary kidney cancer, however, is a lot more complex than some of the aforementioned studies uh, suggest. 
Papillary kidney cancer is a very heterogeneous group of malignancies. Uh, it's not one entity. Just as we say kidney cancer is not one entity, uh, papillary kidney cancer is not one entity. A type 1 papillary kidney cancer is a relatively homogeneous group of malignancies uh, based on both uh, the molecular changes underlying this entity and the histologic uh, uh, parameters that characterize uh, this uh, subtype of cancer. However, the entity that we've traditionally called type 2 that we like to refer to now as non-type 1 papillary kidney cancer is it's really a lot more diverse and a variety of different subtypes with uh, in a diverse array of alterations have been identified and we've worked on uh, this very very closely with our you know wonderful pathologist Dr. Maria Marina who's been telling us for years don't treat all papillary kidney cancers the same uh, and she was right because when we looked at the, the molecular profiles underlying these tumors uh, uh, through the TCG analysis, we found that there were at least four distinct subtypes of kidney cancer, uh, and these molecular subtypes segregated uh, with uh, outcomes as well. I'm going to focus today on one particular entity, hereditary lyomyomatosis and renal cell cancer. I won't go much into uh, 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 the clinical description of this entity because Dr. Linhan already did, uh, but suffice it to say that this is an entity that uh, uh, occurs because of uh, inactivating mutations in the fumarate hydratase gene and the germline. Uh, these patients have a very aggressive form of papillary kidney cancer, and until recently there were no data from prospective studies to guide therapy, and most of these patients died very quickly after diagnosis of metastatic disease. Uh, by understanding the pathway uh, uh, that led to kidney cancer following loss of fumarate hydratase, uh, we were able to come up with a strategy to target uh, effectively uh, what we thought were key aspects driving this tumor. And we used a combination of bevacizumab and erlotinib, a VEGF-targeted antibody, and an EGF receptor inhibitor uh, to try and uh, see if, if this combination would be effective in this tumor. We conducted a phase two study looking at both patients with HLRCC and sporadic papillary kidney cancer because some of those patients share some characteristics with HLRCC patients. Uh, two independent cohorts treated identically with bevacizumab and erlotinib. Um, skip over this slide. And what we saw was that in the HLRCC group, the overall response rate with this combination was 72%. Uh, uh, mind you, this is the group that was not very responsive to treatments previously. So treatments that were typically effective in that era in patients with advanced clear cell kidney cancer didn't do much for these patients. Uh, and many of the patients who came onto the study were actually treated, treated with those agents like sinitinib and bisopinib. So we were quite happy to see a, a fairly high response rate. Uh, we also noticed that uh, the vast majority of patients who went on the study uh, developed some degree of tumor regression. Uh, uh, once again, uh, uh, durability is a, is a key question, and patients treated with this regimen had durable responses. At the time of this analysis, the median duration of response was 19.3 months, and several patients uh, after five, six years still remain uh, on the study in remission. The median PFS is 21.1 months. Uh, this in a disease where before uh, these treatments became available, the overall survival was somewhere in the one uh, to uh, in 12 months to 16 month range. A couple of examples of the kind of patients we treated and uh, uh, you know, saw some nice results with in this, on this trial. First is a 58-year-old man who presented with left flank pain, underwent a radical nephrectomy uh, with lymph node dissection for a large tumor. Uh, the histology was consistent with the type 2 papillary kidney cancer, and, and uh, germline testing revealed a pathogenic uh, FH alteration. Um, 
he developed metastatic disease soon after his uh, uh, kidney cancer, uh, uh, kidney primary resection, and came to us with extensive retroperitoneal adenopathy as well as some mediastinal adenopathy, and tumor deposits in the psoas, uh, so fair amount of disease. Uh, following initiation of treatment, very rapid response in most of these areas. Uh, with then after following four months of therapy, very, very little disease, as you can see, left. Uh, the patient stayed on study for more than 18 months and eventually progressed. A second case, 33-year-old woman, again with a diagnosis of uh, HLRCC with extensive hepatic meds, uh, treated again with this regimen. Uh, you can see uh, how significant the regression has been and how durable the regression has been. Uh, shown here on the right side are regression of the hepatic meds two years following initiation of therapy. Patient remained on therapy for up to uh, close to four years before eventually progressing. Uh, we, we made some gains in uh, treating this, uh, this condition, uh, but we want to do more. We're not curing a lot of patients, even though we see some durable responses. Uh, and uh, with a view to uh, expanding on the uh, you know, gains we've made with this regimen, we've opened a new study which combines uh, this doublet with etazilizumab, a PD-L1 inhibitor, uh, to try and see if we can improve on the results we have with this, uh, with this combination. So I'll end there by saying that uh, while papillary RCC is a very heterogeneous group of malignancies, by understanding the distinct uh, molecular pathways that drive individual subtypes of papillary kidney cancer, we've started to make some headway in effectively treating at least some of these types. And uh, we and others continuing our laboratory efforts uh, to try and uh, you know, expand this to other forms of papillary kidney cancer uh, where we haven't been able to make the same kind of gains uh, uh, as the ones in which I've, uh, we've discussed uh, so far. Uh, last but not the least, we have a large group of people uh, aiding in this effort, both within and outside the NCI, and without uh, you know, this very talented and committed group of individuals, we'd never make the kind of progress we have. Thank you, and I'll stop there. Thank you, Thank you very much, Dr. Shinavas. I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm completely blown away by the science behind all this and by the advances that we've seen. And you've heard this morning, I don't know, it makes my knees weak to think about it. You heard this morning from, from Dr. McDermott some complete responses in patients with advanced disease. We didn't have anything before. And you heard from Dr. Srinivasan some dramatic response, some complete responses in patients with papillary, which was you know, considered horrible and untreatable, sort of. And you also heard from Dr. Srinivasan, don't forget this, you heard from Dr. Srinivasan also in VHL, this is the first hit, responses in kidney, right? Responses in, our, in kidney, we think of surgically, all right? I think this is just the beginning. He also showed you some, the MET, that hereditary papillary, there he showed you, it's kind of buried in a slide, but there, responses in kidney tumors in patients with that type of, of, of kidney cancer papillary uh, with that gene met there. Now, we're not home yet. You know, they're not, you know, complete responses and making them completely go away. But the first evidence that you could really treat tumors even in the kidney. So I think as urologic surgeons, you know, we got a lot to think about here. But, uh, but I think we're getting a lot of help from our colleagues working on understanding how these tumors work and uh, working on uh, developing uh, these therapies. So uh, are you all going to be able to pull up the, uh, my slides again? While they're, while they're doing that, mine was the first talk, I think, just for the, for the follow-up questions. If we can do it, we will. If we want, it's fine. Uh, 
So let me go back, though, to a surgical question. Uh, Dr. Ball, you know, you showed us some remarkable advances surgically in managing these. I know you can do almost anything robotic, but here we are in 2022. When you're we're doing those cases, I mean, for example, you know, old days, we, we used to clamp and slush, you know. So when do you clamp today? You know, with you can do anything, but when do you clamp? And, and also, when you just say, look, it's safer, let's just take this kidney out. You know, two questions. Uh, good questions and, and, and tough questions in, in, in many ways. Um, I think there are two main reasons to clamp. Uh, one is uh, one is to prevent hemorrhage, but two is to be able to visualize uh, your tumor and resection plane and to have a good oncologic result. And certainly for a deep tumor, one that's abutting the sinus, uh, I, I almost always clamp um, to yeah, prevent the first, but then able to make sure I have a good margin um, because we you can see uh, it's particularly deep. Sometimes tumors are not perfectly round. They can have lumps or bumps. And if you, uh, if you leave a piece of tumor behind, then you've not done the patient any good. Uh, and then the second, uh, you know, the AUA guidelines have really um, laid out pretty well when we can think about radical nephrectomy. If a patient um, is going to have, um, has a, a higher oncologic risk tumor and is predicted to have a GFR of you know, over 45, and that's that's a, a patient where radical is on the table, and we can we can certainly think about that. And um, while we certainly underutilize partial nephrectomy in, in in some places, among you know cancer centers and tertiary centers, we we maybe over over utilize rather than underutilize partial nephrectomy. So uh, those are some of my thoughts. Okay. All right. Well, in other words, be safe than sorry. We want to save kidneys, but we don't want to save the cancer and leave it have it come back and and bite them. So. Living to fight another day with one kidney is better than developing metastatic disease. So we're pretty Absolutely. conservative on that. Yeah. Dr. Ball, you presented a case of uh, bilateral tumors. One side was chromophobe, the other side was RCC, a clear cell. You opted to go for an enucleation and then wide excision. Uh, given the high concordance, histological concordance of 90% for synchronous bilateral tumors, uh, how frequently do you do a bilateral biopsy? That's a really good question. Fantastic question. You know, I, I think we can't take for granted uh, if just because we see something on one side that it's the same thing on the other. So I, I will often uh, utilize biopsy, again, when it's going to change management. If we take out a tumor that's an oncocytoma on the other side, you know, I'm, I'm on one side, I'm probably going to biopsy the other because if it's oncocytoma, that's going to change management. I may not offer that patient any treatment and, and do active surveillance. Um, or if it's a, it's a deep tumor that maybe is a radical, I'm going to biopsy that tumor. Same as if it were the, you know, presenting with one tumor and one kidney. Um, when, it, when it's really going to change management is, is when I utilize it. We, we always say, kind of, we have a, sort of a, a thing at our place that, you know, you don't second guess the, the general in the field. In other words, the surgeon doing the case. And uh, so, you know, as Dr. Ball would say, we've had people with uh, BMF onco, sorry, bilateral multifocal onco, but we're not so sure. You know, we make sure. We had one recently that was onco, onco, onco on one side, onco, onco clear on the other, and that clear just about bit us. It got deep, and it got into the renal vein. We got it out, guys done fine so far, but whoo, you know, that was the surgeon managing the patient said, I'm worried about that. I'm not sure about that. Now, we'll do cestamibi, Dr. Ball would say, he showed that cestamibi sometimes helps us, but even that, we're a little, little sort of, uh, sort of uh, you know, kind of caref careful about. 
Dr. Dr. Shrinivasan, just in the last minute here, you talked about this miracle drug, I mean, this incredible thing with Belzutifan. Just, I got a couple patients here real quick. I got a 22-year-old, uh, so our urologic surgeons here, they're seeing a 22-year-old with this disorder, got a two-centimeter mass in the kidney. She's not had female, not had any surgery, two-centimeter. Uh, treat them, watch them. We wouldn't do surgery because it's not three, but, you know, what do you think? I, I got two patients, and then I got a 44-year-old who's also got a two-centimeter. He's had two surgeries already, okay? His renal function's a little down, not much, a little bit, and, you know, God, he doesn't want more surgery, okay? Those two patients, real quick, in closing. So, so assuming there isn't any other overriding reason to treat this patient, like a symptomatic hemangioblastoma or near-symptomatic hemangioblastoma in the spine or some other reason, assuming the, the drive decision is going to be driven by what we see in the kidney, I might be inclined to watch the 23-year-old a little longer because yeah. I, think, yeah. I think there's a shelf life to, to these agents. I'm not... Uh, uh, sure that we can treat them for life with this agent. Uh, right. Fear is that eventually you'll develop some resistance, uh, although I don't know that at this point. Uh, so I'd be, I'd be very judicious in offering somebody who may not need it right away. I mean, it may take years for her to get to close to three centimeters. I may offer it closer to the time she's uh, reaching three centimeters. Uh, the, uh, on the other hand, if somebody who has already had two surgeries and we want to avoid a third surgery at any cost and they have a tumor that's uh, you know, heading towards the surgical threshold, I may be a lot more inclined to offer that person okay. uh, this, right. this drug. So I think that, I presume the consensus of the group up here also would be, we've kind of got a lot to learn. We have a wonderful tool. We're thrilled about it. It's approved by the FDA, as Dr. Trinovastin said, based on this wonderful trial. And, uh, but, uh, you know, of course, you've got to think about the other things with those VHL people, not that that's that common, but if you do, when you do see them, you know, the brain, we treat, you know, you treat also, and the pancreas, so I have to think together on that. But anyway, all right, we're at the 12 o'clock hour, and I want to really thank uh, my colleagues here that made so many contributions to this field. We're so thrilled that they came. Thank you, Dr. McDermott. Thank you, Dr. Srinivasan. Thank you, Dr. Ball, for coming. We, we really appreciate it. I know I learned a lot, and uh, if, if the audience learned as much as I did, then it was a great session. Thank you very much. <laughs>